give a Bible, would you please take it and to turn to John chapter 2. John 2, and we'll be in verses 13 through 25 this afternoon. As we enter into this second half of chapter 2, we're moving on from the seven days that you remember John was describing back from chapter 1, verse 19, seven days of a, a day, or a week, we might say, in the, in the life of Jesus, where people were coming to understand who Jesus was. And we also witnessed last week the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as he turned water into wine in Cana. Uh, they left from Cana, we're told, in verse 12, and uh, went down to Capernaum. They being uh, Jesus and his disciples and his family, his mother and his brothers and possibly sisters, and they were there, it says, for a few days. And then in verse 13, the first verse of our passage, we see Jesus traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. As you read through the Gospel of John, you find that this is the first of at least three and maybe four times that Jesus celebrates the Passover in Jerusalem. In fact, John's recording of these Passover feasts is a major reason why we can say that Jesus' public ministry lasted a minimum of two years and possibly up to three and a half years. These three feasts also give us a sense of the progression uh, and the growth of Jesus' ministry itself. If you compare some of these uh, visits to Jerusalem for Passover, you might find that the, the first visit to Jerusalem uh, and the last visit to Jerusalem are very different. One of the clearest differences being the popularity and the notoriety of Jesus. In John 12, on the last of his visits to Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus rides in on a donkey into the city, and the crowds are shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in this instance, unless you were familiar with John the Baptist's ministry, or you had actually been at that wedding in Cana, no one really knew who Jesus was as he arrived in Jerusalem on Passover. Which is in fact what makes his actions in these verses all the more shocking. Because he arrives in Jerusalem as a virtual nobody, but he speaks with astounding authority. He walks into the temple courts, clears them of all those that are selling animals and exchanging money, and calls that place his father's house. In fact, John doesn't even deal with that, uh, that claim that he's in his father's house in this section. We don't uh, see issues taken with Jesus calling that place his father's house until, until later. There's enough uh, just in the clearing of the temple for them to deal with. In the aftermath of all of this, as with the delegation that came to John the Baptist, you remember in chapter 1, the, the question of the Jews centers on the authority of Jesus and whether or not he had the authority to do what he was doing. You might think about someone coming to your workplace, uh, and right away they walk in, you, you've never seen this person before, and they start telling you how to do your job. And after a while, you get a little frustrated with this, this stranger, and you say to them, uh, excuse me, who, who are you? And are you someone that I'm supposed to be listening to? Do you, do you have any authority to be saying all this stuff that you're saying? For kids, you might imagine someone walking into your, your room and they start changing everything about it. They, they rearrange all the pictures that are on the walls. They start, uh, they go to your dresser and they change the drawers, what clothes are in, in what 
drawer or maybe they start even moving the furniture around. You'd be, you'd be shocked and you'd be sad and you'd probably be a little bit angry because who is this person? And do they have any right to be doing what they're doing in this place that is, that is yours, this thing that you love? Like, why are they doing it? I wonder if some of that might get at the shock of Jesus' actions as he enters into the temple. He was a, a stranger from a small town with no apparent right to these bold actions that he performs. Did he really have the authority to do the things that he does in these verses? And the answer that we find as we read through them is yes, he did. Like the owner of uh, your company can come in and tell you how to do your job, or as your parents can come into your room and at least have some authority about telling you what to do in that place. Even more so, Jesus has authority. More than those individuals, Jesus has divine authority. Authority from God himself to do what he does. The question then becomes, will those around him submit to that authority? Will we? I think these verses are an invitation. An an invitation to this. Allow the divine authority of Jesus to tell us how we meet with God. Allow the divine authority of Jesus, and Jesus has authority to tell us whatever he wants, but specifically in this instance, allow the divine authority of Jesus to tell us how we meet with God. At the center of this narrative is the temple in Jerusalem. It was the place where the Jewish people came to meet with God. It's where they found forgiveness and hope and and joy and truth. And Jesus authoritatively transforms that temple through his actions and through his words. He brings the newness of his kingdom to bear on this place of worship. He comes to us. He comes to everyone in the whole world. He claims the authority to tell us how we will meet with God. That he is the only one that has the authority to tell us how we can meet with God. There's no one else that has that authority. So the question then is, will we submit to that? Will we share his zeal for his father's house? God's word invites us, allow the divine authority of Jesus to tell us how we meet with God. With that in mind, let's read John 2, and I'll begin in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. This is what God's word says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Allow the divine authority of Jesus to tell us how we meet with God. Uh, before we look more deeply at these verses, we need to answer a question that's kind of hovering around them, and it's whether or not this is the same cleansing of the temple that is mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason that's a question is because in those three Gospels, the temple cleansing doesn't occur until the end of Jesus' ministry. It was the day after Palm Sunday that he cleared the temple courts of the money changers there, and his actions ignited the anger of the religious authorities enough to set in motion the plans to kill him later that very week. So is this the same event? we got a few options. The options that we have are that Jesus cleansed the temple once, and either John or the other gospel writers have placed this event in the spot in the story that they felt was best, or option two, there were two cleansings. Now, it may sound strange, option one might sound strange to you, that you would think about John reordering the stories from the life of Jesus and placing them out of chronological order. But there is a sense in which our, our need for a more chronological telling of events is something that's culturally important to us, but may have not been as much of a priority in the ancient world. And so that kind of reordering is a possibility. It's one way to think about this. All that said, though, it seems most natural to see two cleansings of the temple in Jesus' ministry. One here at the beginning that John records, and then the three uh, that the other gospel writers record at the end. Because while they're very similar, there's also a difference, especially in the response of the Jewish authorities, which seems much more tempered. The years between these two cleansings and Jesus' move from some unknown guy from Nazareth to a leader that the world was, was going after also helps us to see how the cleansing would have offered similar but also different messages to those who witnessed it. And so to that end, the first message that we find from this cleansing recorded by John is in verses 13 through 17, and it tells us this, Jesus has authority to cleanse the temple. Jesus has authority to cleanse the temple. The shock of what Jesus does here is pretty clear if you think about it. Even for those of us who don't have as a backdrop the temple and all that it symbolized. Because what we have in our most of our minds is a picture of Jesus that doesn't include this picture. It doesn't include this kind of zeal and passion and righteous anger. We step back, in fact, and we put ourselves into the temple at this moment. I invite you to do that. Imagine yourself there when Jesus does this. We might not really like what Jesus is doing and how he's acting. It'd probably make us a bit uncomfortable. You start to come up with some sort of modern-day parallel of someone acting like this in a public space, we're all going to be a little bit embarrassed, maybe scared, at the very least confused. So, so what's going on with Jesus? Verse 14 helps us see in some ways that this wasn't Jesus reacting without thought. He's not, as we say, flying off the handle. Rather, what happens is he, he goes in, he looks around, and takes in the scene, and then he responds to it. Well, what did he see when he went in and he looked around? We're told in verse 14 that there, he saw two main groups of people. First, there were those that were selling animals to be sacrificed. 
That's the specific purpose. If you didn't know that, you just read, you think, why are they selling animals at the temple? <laughs> well, these are animals to be sacrificed. And, and this actually made a lot of sense. During the Passover celebration, which Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for, uh, it was said that the city could swell to almost three times its normal size as people arrived for this celebration. It's like Derby Day times a lot more. Um, and they would be coming from, from long distance often, which meant that they would need to bring an animal from their, their own flock. But, but they couldn't do that because it was extremely difficult to, to carry this sheep with you from far away or to bring an oxen with you to sacrifice from a, a long distance. And so some travelers, and some travelers probably didn't even have flocks of their own with animals to, to bring. And so they needed to purchase animals so that they could sacrifice them there at the Passover feast. So those that were selling animals there were performing a necessary service for the worship that was going to happen during the Passover. So that's the people selling animals. The other group of people is, is the money changers. Now, again, people are traveling from all over and they needed to exchange money, exchange their currency to purchase these animals and possibly also to pay the yearly temple tax that Jewish men age 20 and over were to pay. And so these money changers would convert coins and they would charge a percentage of some kind for their services. Now, there's the possibility that these merchants were selling the animals at an unfair price or that the money changers were offering a poor exchange rate and making a large profit uh, in their endeavor. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the emphasis here. If you read through it, that doesn't seem to be what John is, is pointing out. Um, it may be part of the emphasis in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we can also, we, we, can, uh, we, can, we can actually assume here that the individuals are, are charging a fair price for a legitimate service. But something makes Jesus mad, so, so what is it? He looks at this situation and he makes a whip of cords, we're told. And he begins to drive all the animals out of the courts. And when he drives the animals, of course, their owners start chasing them because that's their profit. Then he, he takes the coins of the money changers, he imagines, takes their coins and just dumps them out all over the place. And then he starts flipping their tables. You, you see this scene in your mind. The, the noise alone is what, I, what came to my mind. I, I can envision it, but can you hear it almost? The, those, the noise of of buying and selling is going on, and then all of a sudden it's replaced by noises of shock and, and anger and probably yelling. There, there's, there's oxen and sheep that start running because Jesus has a, a whip of cords that he's driving them with. People start running away from sheep and oxen because that's what you do when a sheep or an oxen is, is coming at you. And then you hear the sound of all those coins falling onto a, a stone court. Uh, we have children that dump things out all the time. I know what things being dumped out on the hardwood floors sounds like. And you can imagine all those coins being dumped out on the stone floor and then wood tables being lifted and pounding down onto the pavement. And at the center of all of this is, who is this guy? What's this guy's name? Who does he think he is and what is he doing? He speaks at one point, and he speaks to those that are selling pigeons, maybe because they were in cages and he couldn't drive the pigeons away. And he says, Take these things away. Get these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a house trade. Here's what I think is going on. Jesus' Jesus's concern does not seem to be so much with what the merchants and the money changers are doing as with where they are doing it. 
you know, you start thinking about how, how did they even get there in the first place? I wonder if at some point these temple services were offered, but in different ways and in a different place. And maybe it started just very organically. Someone just had a friend or a relative, and they said, hey, I can't bring a sheep. Could I just buy one of yours and use it? And they said, sure. And they said, well, I've got this money, and it doesn't work at the temple. Could we just kind of exchange? And they did it very organically. And then slowly, you know, this market popped up somewhere in the city during Passover week, and people were buying animals and exchanging money. And then suddenly they said, well, we're so far away from the temple, and i got to drag this sheep all the way up there. Why don't we just get a little bit closer to the temple? And then suddenly they're... They're in the temple, and then suddenly this this whole this whole marketplace fills what's probably the court of the Gentiles. Maybe it happened very very slowly, and maybe at the beginning some people said, "Hey, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this in the temple." But it's also kind of convenient, so we'll let it pass this year. But next year, let's take it back out of the temple. Everyone just kind of got used to it. You know, the church building is not parallel to the temple. Let me say that before I share this illustration. But we might understand some of what Jesus was upset by if we imagine that slowly someone decided that here in the foyer, while we meet, there's going to be like a flea market that happens just right outside these doors in the foyer. And and as we seek to worship here and are singing and praying and preaching the word, we hear people out there, they're buying and they're, and they're selling. And at first we hate it, then maybe we get caught up in it a little bit. And instead of sermon notes, we start writing down our, our grocery list so that when we're all done and we can walk out in the foyer, well, we can just go do our shopping and sort of be done for the week. It's not so much that the market is a bad thing. It's just wrong time, wrong place. Uh, all that said, if I had to summarize, and this is the best I can do, I think there's more going on here, but if I had to summarize what Jesus seems to be upset about, I think this is what I would say. He's upset about desecration through distraction. Desecration through distraction. This this holy place, the, the place where people came to meet with God, was being defiled and it was being desecrated, not through something that was necessarily wrong, but something that was a distraction from what the place was supposed to be about. And as people came to worship, the, the, the noise and the activity that had been brought into this place of worship was keeping people from the purpose of that place. It was keeping people from meeting with God. Mingled with prayers and with songs was the sound of, of commerce, of, of people haggling over the price of a sheep. And this, the temple was desecrated through distraction. We usually call this this action of Jesus. You know what you call what he did here? It's the cleansing of the temple. Remember in the previous um, section here in John, we saw how Jesus was transforming that Jewish rite of cleansing in the way that he, he filled the purification jars with wine at the wedding of Cana. And now he's cleansing the temple. In fact, the animals being sold were to be sacrificed for the cleansing of the people. But in clearing the temple, Jesus says that Yes, the sacrifice needs to be made, but no, this is not the way to go about it. D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus' cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the, as the focal point of the relationship 
between God and man. The temple, remember, represented the place where God met with his people. And the zeal of Jesus is to eliminate, eliminate any barrier that might keep people from being in a right relationship with his Father. As we see in the next section, he's going to do a lot more than just flip tables to eliminate barriers to being restored to his Father. In verses 18 through 25, we see that Jesus has authority to replace the temple. Not just to cleanse the temple, but to replace it. Jesus has authority to replace the temple. Again, the, the response of the Jews in verse 18 seems tempered as compared with the cleansing during the week of his crucifixion. Uh, they, they are skeptical, as they were with that delegation that was sent to John the Baptist, but they also see something in Jesus, it would seem, and they wonder, who is this guy? So they, they want to know about his authority, and they ask him for a sign to prove that he has this authority. They want a sign. Can't he really do what he's doing? I could tell you um, I'm a professional soccer player. I could say that, right? And what would you say? Well, prove it. Give me some sort of sign. Take a corner kick. Let's see it happen. Or, or make a difficult shot. Or get past the defender. Just get past me if you can. Those will all be signs to prove that I am who I, I say I am. We know that, that Jesus could have performed signs, right? Show us a sign, Jesus. Jesus could have done whatever he wanted to do. He's going to do signs later on that make it abundantly clear that he has the authority to cleanse the temple. But he doesn't. He doesn't do a sign here. I think that has something to do with what we read in verses 23 through 25. Did you catch those verses? John 2, beginning in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew their hearts, and he did not entrust himself to them. They're, they're trying to figure out who he is, but he knows exactly who they are. He didn't need a sign to understand them, because he already did. And he wouldn't give them a sign, because he knew it would be wasted on them, because the, their faith and belief were not genuine. There were some, we're told there in verse 23, who did believe. They saw the signs that he performed, and they believed, but others wouldn't believe they wouldn't believe even if he, well, if he died and rose again. They wouldn't believe. And that's the sign he points to, isn't it? As one sermon I listened to put it, it's as if Jesus says here, here's the sign that I'll show you. Kill me and see what happens. <laughs> he doesn't say it like that, though, does he? He tells them to tear down this temple and he'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, you can see them there. They, they look around at the temple and they say, this temple? It took 46 years to build this temple. And you think you can rebuild it in three days? Get out of here. Crazy. But they did not have eyes to see. They didn't have ears to hear. Their hearts were hard. They had a framework that only saw the physical temple. But Don, John tells us that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. He was saying that through his death and resurrection, he would become the place where men and women could meet with God. Doesn't that go right back to the end of John chapter 1 and what Jesus said to Nathaniel, that he's going to become the place where heaven and earth meet. And how's he going to do it? 
He's going to do it by becoming the final sacrifice. Think about this picture. What's going on here? Jesus drives out all of the sheep and all of the oxen and all of the pigeons, and he stands in the temple court, and he says, I am the only sacrifice that you need to know. I am the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He pours out all of the coins of the money changers, and he announces that he is going to pay the debt that we owe for our sin completely. He says that he is the temple. He is the place where we come to meet God and find forgiveness in him. The sign that reveals his authority to cleanse the temple is also the act that causes him to replace the temple. I think our great temptation is to let other things crowd in such that that we think that they are what we need to be made right with God. That there are things that we need to do, or sacrifices that we need to perform, or debts that we need to pay, or places that we need to go. But in Christ, all of the shadows of the Old Testament are fulfilled, and all of our efforts are driven out until we see Jesus alone, and find that it's through faith in his sacrifice that we find salvation. If you're here today trusting that you can meet with God in some other way, then I would invite you to let this picture of Jesus standing amidst the overturned tables and the running animals announce to you that he has come to drive out every other hope of forgiveness so that you will look to him alone. He is zealous for you to trust him alone to save you. He has laid down his life to make that happen. Well, there's one more piece of authority that we find in this chapter, and it's that Jesus has the authority to speak divine truth. Jesus has the authority to speak divine truth. We'll look briefly at this and then think about some application. But I just find it interesting the way that John has structured this. Twice in verse 17, in verse 17 and then in verse 22, we're told that the disciples remembered. Did you notice that link? Verse 17, his disciples remember. Verse 22, uh, the, the middle of verse 22, his disciples remember. In verse 17, they remember the words of, of Psalm 69, 9, and they take them as a prophecy of the Messiah that Jesus fulfills. And then in verse 22, we're told that after Jesus' resurrection, they remember these words that he spoke to the Jews. Here's what I think is going on. I think that John is subtly and masterfully showing that the words of Jesus hold the same weight and the same authority as those of the Old Testament scriptures. The disciples remember the Old Testament, and they remember the words of Jesus, and they believe those words. Because Jesus is the word made flesh, and the sign of his incarnation gives him the right to speak divine truth to anyone who will hear. When Jesus speaks, he speaks the Word of God, because He is the Word of God. And those who believe Him see that His words are divine and that He must be listened to. So I think a big part of what's happening here, verses 13 through 25, is about the authority of Jesus. He has the authority to cleanse the temple. He has the authority to replace the temple. And He has the authority to speak divine truth. And we're invited to allow the divine authority of Jesus to tell us how we meet with God. 
But what's that going to look like? I think that's what I've struggled with with this passage. I can get the theology of it, but the practicality of it has been a little bit of an enigma. And so here I think are three questions that might lead us to some helpful application. And I want to keep them as questions because I think there's a temptation to get very specific here and in getting very specific, run into the same kind of religiosity that Jesus is in fact condemning in this passage. So I want to just ask good questions and hopefully we'll continue that discussion during our potluck and prayer time and think about what does it mean to allow Jesus to have the authority to tell us how we meet with God. Question one then is this, are we zealous to eliminate to eliminate the barriers that keep people from truly worshiping God? Are we zealous to eliminate the barriers that keep people from truly worshiping God? Sadly, so often religion is about putting those barriers up. But Jesus is asking us to walk in his steps and are we zealous to eliminate the barriers to keep people keep people from truly worshiping God? We're told in verse 17 that the disciples saw a zeal in Jesus, a zeal for the house of God. It's that quotation from Psalm 69:9, where David is speaking of his enemies, and then he says that in contrast to them, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So, like David and like Jesus, are we zealous for the purity? of God's house? Well, to answer that, we have to answer another question. What is God's house? What, what is his temple? We've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of the picture of the temple, but we also know that Paul tells us in Ephesians that we who are Christians and we who make up the church are also the temple. The individual Christian is the temple and the church at large is the temple. So we might begin by asking of our individual lives, am I hindering people? From meeting God. As a follower of Jesus, am I hindering people? Is there something about my life that creates barriers or, or noises or distractions from drawing them into true worship? Have I allowed some secondary thing to become so primary that others feel that they can't come to God in Christ? Maybe some political standard, political view, or a personal standard, or a, per, a, a prejudice that you have or I have, but something that, that detracts from the gospel that Jesus says is central and therefore hinders people from meeting with God. We can also think about whether or not we have allowed so, so much noise to enter into the temple of our own lives that we have trouble meeting with Jesus. Have the concerns of, of life consumed our attention so much that we miss the opportunity to fellowship with God in, in constant prayer or in sacrificial living or in spending time in his word or in attending church or in or ministering to others. Have noises come in and drawn us away from true worship? I don't need to tell you that we live in a distracted age. But I think that we human beings have always found ways to fill the courts of our lives with noise in such a way that we're distracted from worship. So maybe, maybe we need to allow Jesus to clear some things away from the courts in our hearts. Sin, of course, needs to be thrown out, but there's also other necessary things that have just gotten too close to our hearts. We need to move them out, move them to the periphery so that we can find deep fellowship 
with the Father. I don't know what those things are for you. I'm not even sure what they are for me yet, but I think that by God's grace through His Spirit, that He can reveal those things to us so we know what's crowding out the true worship that He's called us into. So we can look at our individual lives, but what about what about the church as a whole? Are there ways that, that we, even as a church, or that the church at large is hindering people from meeting with the Father? Distractions that cause people to miss the, the core message of Jesus. Here's a quote from a guy named Bruce Mill. He writes this, Modern day worship, which is irreverent, superficial, distraction-filled, cold, lifeless, sloppy, self-indulgent, hypocritical, ill-prepared, or theologically inappropriate, will likewise receive Jesus' censure, as will worship which detracts from the honor and glory of the living God through a concern for performance and self-display on the part of those leading it. Strong words from this man. But is any of that true of us? Is our worship at times cold and lifeless or self-indulgent and hypocritical? Is it focused on performance and self-display? If so, it's pushing people away from who Christ is. It could also be even that our concern with, with right worship and doing things the, the right way has, has distracted us from pure and undefiled religion, from caring for widows and orphans, from serving the poor and the needy. I can't prove this, and I didn't read it in any commentaries, but I just wonder... I just wonder if the fact that Jesus' words, when he speaks, we're told he speaks to certain people. Who does he speak to? He speaks to the people that were selling the pigeons. Uh, why just them? I don't know, but the pigeons would have been sold to, to the poorest people. That was the, the smallest sacrifice that you could bring. And so if you were very poor and you couldn't buy a, a sheep, then you could buy a pigeon and you could bring that. And I just wonder, is maybe Jesus frustrated with those folks in particular, that they're taking advantage of the poor in some way? We might even ask ourselves, of our church and, and the way we worship, have we created barriers to people? Specifically, have we created barriers to the poor and to the needy from coming to Christ? So many more questions we can ask, but are we creating barriers that keep people from meeting with Jesus, whether in our personal lives or even as a church? Two more questions briefly. One is, are we listening to the authoritative voice of Jesus? He has authority. He speaks the words of God. Are we listening to the authoritative voice of Jesus? Like the disciples, do we see in Jesus the voice of divine truth? Are we ready and willing to listen to his word? Are we submitting to the scriptures regularly in our own reading? Are we hearing his word through the preaching of the scriptures and seeking apply to apply it to our hearts and our lives or other other voices that have suddenly got into the courts of our lives and we're listening to them and they're so much louder and suddenly we let them have authority we let people tell us what's true and we're not listening to what Christ is saying and suddenly we become like like the Jews here in, in verse 18, who don't have ears to hear, who don't have eyes to see, and their hearts are hollow, and they miss it. Are we listening to the authoritative voice of Jesus? Final question. Are we looking to anything or anyone 
other than Jesus to put us in a right relationship with God? Are we looking to anything or anyone other than Jesus to put us in a right relationship with God? Remember, Jesus has the authority to tell us how we meet with God. And he says the way you meet with God is through me. So are we looking somewhere else? We've already talked about this. I hope that image of Jesus standing there, with everything else scattered in the middle of this, this court saying, I am the way that you meet with God. I hope that that becomes seared in our minds. And now as we take the Lord's Supper, we have the, authority, we have the, the opportunity to affirm that, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That we believe Jesus paid it all. And he has cleansed us through his broken body and through his shed blood. That because Jesus, not, not that he was destroyed. Remember what he says actually in, in John 10. He speaks of a different authority that he, said, that he has. This is what he says in John 10. Verse 17, for this is the reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Listen to this then. I have authority. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. I have authority to destroy this temple, and I have authority to raise it up again three days later. This charge I have received from my Father. We remember the authority of Jesus, but also the willingness that he had to lay down his life and then to take it up again. And that is where our hope is found.